My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the preachers for our church. We are really glad to have you here with us. If you need a Bible or a bulletin or a pen, feel free to help yourself. Uh, John Walker can also uh, pass them out. Feel free to put your hand up and he can bring you some of those things. Because in, in honor of the season of Advent... Starting today, we continue our study of the Song of Solomon. There's a clear connection between those two. In our study, we come to verse 8 of chapter 2. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 526. We come to a, a text that describes how a pair of friends among God's people, become something more than friends and develop a romantic relationship. Therefore, this passage has much to teach us today about how to date like a Christian. That's the title of this sermon. But before I go any further than the title, I must address something rather obvious. Which is that while there are some of you uh, here today and uh, attending on Zoom, there are some of you who are currently in the market for dating advice. And yet while some of you are, the fact is many of you are not. Maybe you are young enough that dating seems yucky. Or maybe you're old enough that dating seems somewhat juvenile. Or maybe you're already married and while you hopefully date your spouse, you don't do so in the sense of seeking a new mate. Maybe you have no intention of ever getting married or of dating. Maybe you used to be married and you aren't anymore. Maybe you thought you'd be dating or even married by now and you're not and you're constantly ambushed by the disappointment of that fact. Maybe you experience same-sex attraction and you're wrestling with the ramifications of what God says about marriage and sexuality. Or maybe you're in some other situation I haven't listed and whatever your situation The fact is, many of you simply wouldn't think of yourself as being interested in hearing a sermon about how to date like a Christian. Please let me assure you that our church needs you to be interested in a sermon about how to date like a Christian. Because even if you are not dating yourself or currently in the market for personal dating advice, I'm pretty sure you know somebody who is. And if you don't know somebody who is, pretty soon you will, because we have many young people in this church growing into dateable, marriageable age. We have a segment of our congregation who is very marriageable and dateable. And we all need to know what God says on this topic because matters of the heart 
are the kinds of matters most likely to cause train wreck in our lives. Remember, it was romantic love that led Solomon himself away from God when he married hundreds of women who led him to worship false gods. Love is one of the most intoxicating and one of the most destructive forces in the human heart. You see, the way God made it to work is that it causes you to stop thinking rationally and it accesses the delight sensors in your brain. And so we need as a community, right thinking people who have heard God's instruction so that they can help each other and we can help each other when we are deceiving ourselves in this realm and heading toward disaster. So please know that God in his mercy has not left us to ourselves to figure out how to date like a Christian. In this text, he gives us wisdom to experience true love and true delight and to avoid shipwrecking our faith. So we need everybody to be interested in hearing what God has to say on this topic. And what does this passage say about how to date like a Christian? You can see on your outline that he calls us to pursue a clear and selfless, excuse me, selfless direction toward marriage. He calls us to align our dreams with that direction. And then he calls us to forsake all counterfeits. Let me pray as we dive into our text. Our Father in heaven, please give us ears to hear and fill us with your spirit that we might understand your word. And Lord, I ask that you would please lower our defenses on such a sensitive topic like how we conduct ourselves in dating and romantic relationships and help us to hear what you have to say that we might walk with you and find the life that you have for us at the end of our path. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing this text teaches about how to date like a Christian is to pursue a clear and selfless direction toward marriage. Now, it's been two weeks since we've been in this book, so let me remind you that the previous poem ended with the couple achieving the intimacy they desired and then turning and warning the remaining unmarried folks to be careful. We should note that the poems in this book are not strictly chronological as they now go back once more to describe their process of coming together. So although they came together before this, they're now apart again. That's where we start. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Let me read verses 8 through 17. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, 
Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains." In this poem, the couple starts far apart and they end with talk of mutual possession. By the time we get to verse 16, she says, he is mine and I am his. So their relationship demonstrates a clear direction from point A, being far apart, to point B, this place of mutual possession of one another. So first... Notice his enthusiasm to get to her. Verse 8, he's leaping over mountains, bounding over hills, like verse 9, a gazelle or a young stag. So he's coming to her, but all of this exposes, letter A, the unfortunate reality. The unfortunate reality, which is that he is not with her. He's not with her. The poem begins with him very far away across field, mountain, and gale. And even when he arrives at her home, verse 9, he stands behind our wall gazing through the windows. You see, there's a wall of separation between them. A wall of miles separates their residences and a wall of brick and mortar separates them even when they try to get close. The idea is that the mating process involves a delightful togetherness that remains necessarily separate. Presumably in that culture, she's still in her parents' home. That's why she says he's behind our Wall. Her parents likely have boundaries in place as to when and how he might be permitted to enter and see her. And after the playful flirting of chapter 1 that we talked about there, their hearts are growing closer and more fond of one another. But there are fail-safes in place to guard and to guide them through this awkward season. In many cases, these fail-safes could involve the parents or the close friends of the couple. It involves some basic commitments to enforce wise and chaste behavior. So remember, there is nothing like the prospect of dating or mating to grab our hearts and turn them into mush. It's often not reasonable to expect objective rationality to win the day in matters of the heart. 
It's exceptionally difficult to make wise decisions in the middle of all those treasonous feelings and hormones. So in public places, they try to get themselves in the right place at the right time to be with each other. But private seclusion is difficult to come by, or at least it ought to be. Let me take a moment by way of application to highlight the first place here where God's wisdom flies directly in the face of the world's wisdom. Worldly mating rituals involve as much privacy and seclusion as possible. There are no walls of separation. There are no awkward boundaries. No behaviors are off limits and no parts of one another's bodies are off limits. There are no parents or friends involved to help provide accountability or community. In fact, today's hookup culture is all about getting as physically intimate as possible, as quickly as possible, without any bounds or awkward separations. The most awkward moment sometimes is the morning after when casual partners might have to exchange phone numbers or names. But the awkward reality of God's world is that there is an appropriate time for separate togetherness. In other words, we get together, but a clear wall remains between us. And it is in that setting that the woman now recounts her man's speech to her, starting at verse 10. What is it that he speaks through the wall that currently separates them? There are two things involved in his speech. First is letter B, the risky request. The first stanza of his speech is bracketed by the request in verses 10 and 13. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. And come away. That these bookends on the first stanza between verses 10 and 13, that states the point of the stanza, which is that he's making a risky request. He goes out on a limb and invites her to come away with him. And where does he invite her to? Verse 11, he invites her to a magical land of perpetual springtime. It is sometime after the winter has passed and the heavy rains are gone. Verse 12, it's a time when flowers appear, singing is in the air, and the birds chirp pleasantly. Verse 13, figs and grapes are ripe and fragrant. So he uses the springtime as his metaphor for the time of love. Remember our our previous text, verse 7 of chapter 2, ended with the admonition not to stir up or awaken love until the right time. Well, right here he says, the time has come. The spring is here. In more modern language, it's as though he says, I like you. Do you like me? Please check one. Yes or no. And this is risky because you know what? She might check no. It's a risky request. 
And though the man is the one popping the question here, you might remember that in chapter 1, the woman was the one who first asked him where she could meet up with him. So there are times and places for the man to initiate, and there are times and places for the woman to initiate. All of our stories are going to be very, very different. And there are some differences But regardless of how exactly it plays out and regardless of which of the two it is who puts the risky request on the table, the truth of the matter is that the time comes in any relationship when the question must be asked. Will you come along with me? Or would you like to go out for dinner with me? Or it seems like we're becoming more than friends. Would you agree? Or would you be willing to pursue a closer relationship to see what God might have in store for the two of us? Such a risky request is more than worth it when you consider, let us see, the desired result. The desired result, verses 14 to 17. The end of this chapter shows us what direction this whole thing is heading in. In verse 14, he, he pursues persuasion, trying to get her to come with him. But he's not just trying to manipulate her into his life or into his bedroom. His most persuasive argument is his gentle and selfless character. In verse 14, he likens her to a precious and fragile dove hiding in the clefts of the rock. He knows she might be scared. Her heart may have been broken before, but he calls to her gently, wooing her to come out into the open where he can see and hear her. And he wins her not by making demands, but by proving to her that he can put her needs above his own and he can coax her out and win her heart for life. And then in verse 15, He says to catch the foxes for us. And the Hebrew verb translated as catch is a plural verb. You should know that because it means that he is no longer speaking to her alone. He is speaking to some group of people. Would you all please catch the foxes for us? He's likely speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem who have already been addressed earlier in the poem. He's asking their help to catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Foxes are one of the greatest threats to those who cultivate vineyards. They're sly and sneaky and they pilfer the grapes for themselves, wrecking the vineyard in the process. So far in this book, the vineyard has been a metaphor of the body. For example, in in chapter 1, verse 6, she described her, her own insecurities about her appearance with the metaphor, my own vineyard I have not kept. Here, he asks others to help him or to help them catch the little foxes because our vineyards are in blossom. Or they are in bloom. In other words, this young couple wants to protect the sanctity and the privacy of one another's bodies. And they know they need help with this. They're asking others to help. 
What the man is doing here is he's showing her that he doesn't believe his relationship with her to be a purely private affair. He recognizes a godly man, a godly woman will recognize that a romantic relationship is a public affair which will eventually have private components. So what he does here is he lets his woman know right up front that he doesn't just want to get her alone so that he can have his way with her and with her body. He wants her to join him along with members of their church and members of their friend group to a place where she will be honored, cherished, and protected while they continue getting to know one another. And his godly, selfless character really shines and wins the day because his speech ends here and she speaks for herself again in verses 16 and 17. And in verse 16, she gives us the first of three declarations in this book of their mutual possession of one another. My beloved is mine and I am his. So he, he has won her heart. He wins her and she is ready to come out from the cliffs and let him into her heart and into her life. And she hopes that they will get to that place of mutual possession of one another. But here in this chapter, we should see that she knows that they are not there yet. That's the direction they're heading in. My beloved is mine and I am his. But we're not there yet. <clears throat> Because she adjusts his metaphor. Although it is spring and therefore the time to awaken love. She says it's still the night time. It's not yet day. Verse 17 she says until the day breathes and the shadows flee. That is until the sun rises. Until the morning comes. She wants him to turn and go back to the mountains from whence he came in verse 8. This is not a rejection of his overtures, but an acknowledgement that dating is not the same thing as marriage. She still has her home, and he still has his home. She accepts his overture. She will join him in this season of springtime. But after tonight's dinner and movie, they will still have to say goodnight and goodbye. They do not act physically as though they are already married, and they do not act emotionally as though they are already married. What is the larger point here in this whole section, verses 8 through 17? The idea is that this season of human attraction, be it dating or courtship, or whatever you want to call it. This season is a wonderful and delightful season. It's like the first 60-degree day after a really hard winter. You know how great that is when the springtime finally lands? And it's a wonderful, delightful season, but it's a season with a direction. It is heading toward the mutual possession of marriage, but with clear recognition that it is not yet marriage. And so boundaries are set in place. Accountability is invited from others. Parents and friends are welcomed in as appropriate based on the circumstances. 
And the awkwardness of separation remains even as the walls will progressively thin over the course of the relationship. So friends, in contrast to the world's view of mating, Christians get into romantic relationships with the end goal of marriage in mind. Many people in our culture date or hook up simply to have fun, to satisfy their desires, or to get to know people. But for God's people, there is a better and a more delightful path. God's people date in order to move toward the mutual possession of marriage. In other words, the purpose of dating is not simply to have someone to be close with. The purpose of dating is to discover whether marriage is a good idea for this couple. And I've said that this direction toward marriage must be clear and selfless. The direction must be clear because the relationship is moving somewhere to explore this option. And the direction must be selfless because it's not primarily about hooking up or making yourself feel good. It's about protecting one another and winning hearts gently and selflessly. For these reasons, a relationship, a dating relationship that breaks up for the right reasons is not a failed relationship, but a successful one. In other words, if a couple realizes that they can't or they shouldn't marry one another and one or both of them decides to end the relationship, that is nothing to be ashamed of. Of course, it's still really painful I know, I've experienced it. But the pain of breaking up with the wrong person is far, far less than the pain of marrying the wrong person. So once you decide to pursue a clear and selfless direction in dating, for the good of the other person and in consideration of marriage, the next thing is, number two, to align your dreams with that direction. This is where the text now goes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So here the woman appears to be dreaming. In verse 1, she's on my bed by night. And so she dreams, her dreams are in alignment with the direction the previous poem was heading in. Their budding romance was heading in the direction of the mutual possession of marriage. Chapter 2 verse 16. So now in her dreams, she's, she's moving in that same direction. She says three times that she sought him. But, verse 1, she can't find him in her bed. 
Verse 2, she can't find him in the streets. And verse 3, she can't find him among the night watchmen. But verse 4, when she finally does find him, she holds on to him and she refuses to let him go. You see, what she wants, what she dreams for is to get him in her clutches to the place where she can finally say, I am his and he is mine. She will not let go of him, verse 4, until she brings him into her mother's house, into her mother's chamber, her mother's bedroom. This sounds a little awkward and strange to us today, but I'm quite sure it was deeply romantic in that culture. It, for them, bringing a man into your mother's chamber was a uh, just a vivid picture of the family baton being passed from one generation to the next. It's a coming of age. It's you are now full grown and you are your own family. You are no longer our child. You are a family in your own right. That, that's the idea here. The point is that she dreams of their relationship eventually losing its separation altogether. She wants the walls to come down. She wants the distances between them to close. She wants the springtime joy of their romance to advance into the heat waves of summer. She doesn't want them to have to say goodbye at the end of the evening. She wants him to be her husband Till death do us part. How does this apply? Brothers and sisters, when you dream or daydream about romance, does it have a soundtrack of wedding bells? Are you thinking, when you dream about these things, are you thinking about mowing the grass, washing the dishes, repainting the kitchen? Providing for a family. Are you dreaming about a lifelong commitment to the same person along with the intimacy that comes along with that? Someone with whom you're eager to get to know better and better day by day. Someone with whom you'd like to unite your finances, your possessions, your life goals, and your most intimate moments. So please understand, the purpose of dating is to consider marriage. And we are to align our dreams with that purpose. Therefore, if you are too young to consider marriage, you are too young to consider dating someone. If you are dating someone and you can't see yourself marrying them without seismic change in either their life or yours, then please consider whether perhaps you shouldn't be dating just yet. Maybe wait for the change to occur first and don't let your hormones or your romantic feelings cloud your judgment. And I'm not saying by this, that a dating couple must begin planning a wedding from day one. It's not that you're committing on day one to marry this person. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about the relationship's direction. Its purpose is to explore that. And if you have a Christian friend who is in a dating relationship or considering a dating relationship, 
And marriage is not where that relationship is heading or should be heading, then perhaps being a good friend, perhaps helping to catch those little foxes, means buying them a giant mocha and drawing out their heart in the matter. Try to understand and serve them as best you can, but also please ask some frank questions. Because the best and truest delight to be found in such relationships is for those who don't seize it at the wrong time. And that's where the poem concludes. Final point, to forsake all counterfeits. Verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, this statement occurs three times in this book. This is the second time we've heard it now. And this is not just a piece of friendly advice. The bride desperately appeals to the other young women of Jerusalem. That phrase, I adjure you at the beginning of this verse, that means that she puts them under oath. She binds them under oath to seek no counterfeits to true love as God defines it. She binds them under oath to not jump the gun, to not dive into a relationship, to not get a girlfriend or boyfriend before they're ready to consider potentially taking it to its end, which would be marriage. She binds them under oath not to let hormones and impulses rule the day. Let me apply this warning to one place where hormones and impulses tend to rule in our day. Because this passage exposes one of the great problems with pornography. Which is that pornography gives us all the wrong dreams. This is not the only problem with pornography, but it's one we ought to consider You see, pornography trains us to love ourselves and to dream about all the things we might demand of a partner once we get the chance. Pornography completely erodes our ability to lay down our lives for the sake of a beloved. Pornography prevents us from learning how to coax the dove that is the beloved out from behind the rocks. Because pornography fills our heads and our hearts with all these fake, unrealistic, and self-centered fantasies. And by promising you cheap satisfaction, pornography actually robs you of the ability to experience the deep satisfaction of sacrificial love for another. So if you struggle with porn, please get help to set it aside. It's not too late. God's grace is sufficient. Your own ability to enjoy true love depends on it. I adjure you, sons and daughters of the new Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Why, you might ask. 
Why shouldn't I satisfy these urges? Why shouldn't I hook up with someone later this week? Why shouldn't I click that link to those enticing images? Why shouldn't I go and find myself a boyfriend or a girlfriend, even if I'm not ready to think about marriage yet? Why shouldn't I stir up or awaken love? Dear, dear friend, you don't need to awaken love because love has already been awakened toward you. Love was awakened from the grave when Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Jesus is the one who leapt not across mountains, but from heaven to earth in order to win you. He is the perfect lover who literally gave up his life to win his bride. When it comes to love, you and I are sometimes selfish and other times we're just sad, broken, or afraid. So we have no chance of loving others the way we ought until we learn to find our deepest satisfaction in the fact that he has already loved us the way he ought. When you trust in Jesus as your only hope, as your king and master, you become his very own and he becomes yours. He understands all the pain you've been through. He knows how awkward attraction and dating are. He knows how broken your heart has become. He can see all the rocky cliffs in which you have chosen to hide and protect yourself. And he calls out to you, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Maybe today is the day you can trust him for the first time and see true love once and for all. Or maybe today is the day you stop resisting his wisdom in matters of love and submit to his kind and gentle leadership such that his commands are not burdensome for you. Please trust Jesus today so you can see true love and learn to love like he did. And then we move forward as his people, pursuing a different, narrow path, very different from the way the rest of the world does it. So how do you date like a Christian? You pursue a clear and selfless direction toward marriage. You align your dreams with that direction, and you forsake all counterfeits. Friends, it's worth it to turn away from our selfish desires that we might remain in his unbreakable love. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you would be rooted and grounded in his love and may be filled with all the fullness of God. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you have given us wisdom on such a sensitive topic and you have loved us 
in a way that no one else could through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to walk in your truth. Help us to love one another that we might understand and experience your delight. And Lord, whatever is in our past, help us to rest in your grace, that your grace is sufficient for us and we can start anew today. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.